You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week, Mabel Chu continues our series on assessing the elderly with a look at assessing carers. Does the person you're caring for ever, ever hurt you? And then that might be followed up by, say, shouting at you or even hitting you. But before that, Helen Jakes has been visiting the GMC. Here in the United Kingdom, doctors who want to practice medicine have to register with the General Medical Council. The General Medical Council also upholds the standards of professional behaviour and conduct expected of doctors, which are outlined in its guidance, Good Medical Practice. This includes a directive that doctors' conduct at all times justifies their patients' trust in them and the public's trust in the profession, what they call probity. Some doctors have expressed concern that the current standards of probity allow the GMC to intrude too far into their private lives. The GMC is currently conducting a review of good medical practice. So, earlier this week, I met with Neil Dixon, Chief Executive of the GMC, to put this and other points to him. Well, it's not necessarily us becoming more intrusive. It's asking the question about where is the line. Um, doctors' views vary on, on this uh, topic, as do members of the public's view, it probably varies depending on uh, where you live in the country. I think there are more conservative views and more liberal views about this. Um, But there are areas of uh, private life which I think we would all be fairly united about. Um, Doctors who access child pornography, I mean, I'm sure there may be people who think, well, that's nothing to do with um, their practice as a doctor. I think most members of the public, most patients and most doctors would absolutely say that was a that was an area. Um, I think drink driving is another area, um, in part because it sometimes signals that there's something more fundamental going on in terms of that uh, doctor's relationship with alcohol and how that could affect their could affect their practice. Um, and uh, I suppose the other area is probity. Uh, we do expect doctors to be honest and trustworthy, and I, uh, I think it is highly unlikely we would in any way dilute our adamant view that they have to be honest and straightforward people in all that they do. And clearly a doctor who was dishonest in some other sphere, um, uh, we, we would then say, well, you can't simply put that line up between your clinical practice and the, the rest of your life, if you've been fiddling your tax or uh, trying to cheat your next door neighbour or whatever else it is, uh, we believe that undermines the general trust in the profession and that is absolutely something we would want to do. A few of the examples you suggested are things that are sort of pretty straightforwardly illegal like child pornography or drink driving, so you'd, you'd like to think that the kind of judicial process would pick that up without the General Medical Council getting involved. But what about the sort well, of... we would get involved. The point is, do we get involved? Do we simply allow the, the the process to go on and do nothing in relation to their medical practice? And I think our view is, you know, I go back to an extreme example just to make it clear, but if a doctor commits rape, they will be punished, of course, by... Uh, by the courts if they are convicted of, of such an offence. And you could say, well, that's fine. They've paid their price and done their bid. Um, we don't think that's right. We think that that has an effect on the trust in the profession. And we don't think that somebody who has committed that act and has been found by the courts to commit that act should be practising as a doctor in this country. But what about the kind of grey area, the things that could bring... I mean, that fits in with the whole bringing the profession into disrepute area, for example, if a doctor's sort of drunk every weekend. and Where's the threshold going to be set for this more sort of 
maintaining the kind of public's perception of doctors? It's always difficult trying to comment on, in effect, an individual case, albeit a hypothetical one. But actually, a doctor who was drunk every weekend, I would be worried about that. I would be worried about somebody who was getting drunk every weekend because there would be an issue about their dependence on alcohol and so forth. So I would actually have a concern uh, about that. Um, but um, that said, we, uh, you know, we have no desire to, you know, delve into the private lives of uh, of individual doctors and doing things that are, you know, honest and comply with the law and so on. For the most part, I don't think we would want to get involved. It's where we think that the reputation of the profession is affected by uh, those the, the activity or. And more importantly, in a way, the absolute critical one, does it affect okay. uh, patient safety? At the moment, if a doctor is called before the GMC to respond to concerns about their practice, that hearing is carried out in public. Proposals are afoot to change this, though. So, yeah. proposals are afoot to change this, though, so that if a doctor doesn't dispute the allegations, the hearing will be done behind closed doors. Again, some people are concerned about this change and worried that it could make doctors more likely to capitulate to avoid the glare of a public hearing. I started by asking Neil Dixon to set out the proposed plans. Uh, Going through a public hearing is traumatic for witnesses. It's certainly traumatic for the doctor and his or her family. Um, it, It seems to us... It's also time consuming. It takes a long time. And there's always a fear that you know, justice delayed is, is justice denied. So it's difficult for everybody. If we can find a way or in which we can reach agreement with the doctor about what is necessary action to be taken, which protects the public, uh, then why would we need to go and subject everybody involved to that, uh, to that public hearing? With it, with this new uh, approach, is it possible that a doctor could feel pressurised to accept a sanctions in order to avoid a public hearing and, and sort of avoid this sort of traumatic process? Well, I'm sure some of them will say that and say, um, uh, I, I think, but, but they will have to make the judgment about that. We will make our judgment, and our judgment is again nothing to do with punishing doctors. It's all to do with how can we protect patients, future patients, um, and what action do we need to take in relation to this doctor in order to be able to do that, and also how do we ensure that the reputation and trust in the profession is not undermined by what this doctor has done. So uh, does the plan to skip public hearings risk deals being done behind closed doors because you're going to possibly lose this level of transparency that you have with public hearings at the moment? Indeed, and it's a, an issue that's been raised by journalists. So absolutely determined this will not be um, covering anything up. And whatever is decided as a result of this process, it will be made public. So it's not a question of um, we do a deal with the doctor and it's all covered up. Uh, once, If the doctor accepts what we uh, have determined, then that will be uh, in the public domain. So the bit that won't be in public is... Uh, arguments, endless arguments within in front of panels about questions of detail and, and so forth. This really does depend on the doctor accepting what has happened. If they dispute what has happened, then we're probably head, heading for panel territory. Uh, uh, 
Uh, but it, but it seems again pretty pointless if the doctor has accepted all the things that are happening that we don't need to get, uh, crawl all over them uh, uh, in in the public domain. And more from that interview with Neil Dixon will be available in BMJ Careers. Now, Mabel Chu talks to Ian Cameron, head of the Rehabilitation Studies Unit at the University of Sydney, about assessing the carers of older people. Ian's here to discuss with me the assessment of carers of older people and the role of the doctor. This is part of the BMJ's series of assessment of the older patient. Ian, welcome to this BMJ podcast. Uh, Thanks, Mabel. Okay, so let's go through the steps of what I need to do as a busy GP. The the key point is to recognise that uh, a patient is a carer. If there's a longer-term relationship with the patient, that will be quite obvious. However, if a person is new to the practice, that may not be obvious. There are many care assessment tools available. However, in practice, the issues are around having a conversation with the carer, getting an idea of their experience, then to explore issues in more detail. Okay. Now, I I think you raise an important point, which is that we need to first identify who the carer is and in the first instance it may simply be a question of asking the patient themselves who's involved in looking after them or helping look after them but it may also be obvious if a certain person brings them in every time Um, but it's also a useful thing I guess to ask if there's anyone else involved in the caring. Uh, Yes, yes. Carers are often a little wary of being asked how they're coping because of fears that the patient will be bundled off to a nursing home or there will be pressure put to bear on them. How do you deal with concerns like these? Uh, Yeah, there are concerns that might be raised explicitly or might be implicit in the carer's reaction. It could be perhaps raised uh, just with very open-ended questions uh, initially around how things are going uh, and perhaps um, picking up clues that then might be raised or might be saved for another day. Um, Once the conversation starts, then there's often multiple issues on which uh, assistance can be provided. And I guess after that it's a matter of honing these down to identify areas where as a GP or a geriatrician or other health practitioner um, you might be able to uh, suggest some sort of intervention. What are the sort of areas of concern that we need to uh, explore from a practical point of view? Those support service type issues will vary from region to region and country to country but in general if there's uh, physical assistance needing to be provided by the carer uh, there'll be support services in terms of provision of equipment, um, behavioural issues. It, it may be a referral to other healthcare providers. To give the carer a break, so-called respite, can be helpful. Respite, though, is not a panacea and, uh, in general, won't be sufficient in itself to help greatly burden carer. Um, there are quite a lot of educational uh, programs that can be available uh, to the carer that might increase their understanding in relation to illness and disability issues or open up other opportunities for support, for example, through uh, carer associations. 
and the final summary area would be caregiving can disadvantage the person financially as well so that there may be schemes to provide uh, financial assistance to the carer to uh, help support them in their caring role. What about taking into consideration specific issues to do with the carer's physical health? That may be appropriate, particularly if the carer is an older person. Uh, that will happen most easily if the carer is already a patient, but if not, even some general health questions can be of assistance. Mm. Or even, I guess, uh, for a, a doctor on the ward to very gently suggest that the carer go to their own GP for a checkup. Yes, that, 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 that's certainly sound advice. I guess other risk factors would be where the carer and the patient don't seem to have very much social support. Yes, that, that would be right. Uh, social isolation. The other thing uh, would be where the carer has uh, many other responsibilities, uh, particularly adult daughters are carers as well as spouses. And so the adult daughter may have a responsibility to one or both of her parents as well as a, a family of her own and so that would be another area uh, of risk. Carer abuse is something that you mention in your article. I just wonder whether you'd like to talk a little about red flags for that. In identifying uh, possible carer abuse the, the situation would be where the care recipient is known to be a person with dementia and behavioural and psychological symptoms related to dementia and so the question to the carer would be in, in a supportive context would be is the person, does the person you're caring for um, ever, ever hurt you and then that might be followed up by say shouting at you or even hitting you um, and use of that question uh, in the context of a, a, a productive relationship with, with the doctor uh, will frequently elicit when care abuse is occurring a positive reaction from the carer and then that can be further explored. And this of course implies that you're looking both at the interaction of the carer with the patient but perhaps also chatting to the carer away from the patient. Yeah, that's, that's a very good point. In both those settings I'm looking for the carer being uneasy, angry perhaps anxious, all those things I'd be alert to and then if I recognise those I'd then try to explore them further, uh, ideally interviewing the carer by themselves so to give them the chance to talk without uh, the care recipient being aware of, of, of the, the issues being discussed. Okay, that's very helpful. Thank you, Ian. I guess one of the things we're trying to do with a carer assessment is to identify at-risk situations um, and prevent carer abuse. Yeah, that, that's right. By careful carer assessment and engagement, you hope to prevent abuse. Um, and it's reasonable to expect that that might occur. Um, carer abuse is a significant issue but the bigger and more immediate issue are the very large number of carers who are feeling uh, burdened and as a result uh, having less than optimal quality of life and uh, sometimes jeopardising their own health. Yes, and I guess if the GP themselves doesn't have time for 
too detailed an exploration, a referral to a social worker or social services would sometimes be uh, a really useful, would often actually be a really useful option. Yes, I, I, I'd certainly agree with that. Um, at least in the Australian context, we're seeing practice nurses being available much, much more often, and, and so uh, a, a more detailed care assessment uh, could be uh, undertaken by, by that practice nurse as well. Ian, thank you for this careful assessment of the carer assessment. And that clinical review is available online on bmj.com. That's all for this week. Next week we'll be reporting from our Global Health Conference. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.